What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Now to New York State, where prison guard unions have supported their members to a shocking degree. According to research done by the Marshall Project, three out of every four state corrections officers who were fired for abuse over a 12-year span got their jobs back. Joining me to discuss is one of the authors of that report, Joe Neff. Joe is a staff writer for the Marshall Project who has investigated wrongful convictions, prosecutorial and police misconduct, probation, cash bail, and quote-unquote forensic science. Joe, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Your latest reporting focus is on New York's correctional officers who lose their jobs as a result of some kind of abuse of power misconduct but then are able to get their jobs back through arbitration. It's a lot to dive into. I want to start with the first piece of the process, though, before we even get to arbitration and reinstatement. What does it take for a New York prison guard to lose their job? What kinds of misconduct and abuse are we talking about? And what's the process it has to go through in order even to get to the point where a prison guard gets fired? That's, of course, before arbitration. Well, a prison guard can get fired for some mundane things like being late to work or showing up drunk. That's stuff that would happen in any office. We looked, or workplace, we looked, though, at things that are specific to prisons, in particular, um, assaulting, beating, or abusing a prisoner and covering it up, lying about it in false records or, or lying about it to investigators. And there's an internal process where the department will file internal charges in an effort to fire the guards. And my colleague Alicia Santo and I found that we looked at all of those cases, abuse, false documentation, and lying to investigators. And the department succeeded only in firing 10% of those that were charged. Uh, that they tried to fire. Most of them got their jobs back. Uh, some of them were maybe given a suspension or a monetary fine. But in general, the department did a pretty poor job of getting rid of the people that thought a danger to the community. Again, before we get to arbitration, I, I want to try to better understand the story of kind of the thin blue wall or or the blue wall of of silence. Um, in in your earlier reporting, you described some of the situations in which prison guards really, for lack of a better term, got each other's backs. One of the stories that you described um, really showed the drama of that. It was the story of Cody Mackey, and I'm I'm wondering if you can start there, tell that story. Right. It it, it it's an example of the immense pressure. Uh, not to blow the whistle on your colleagues or to do the right thing. He was, uh, Cody Mackey was a uh, uh, a guy in the National Re- uh, National Guard. He was working in the prison. He was in, fresh out of the academy, touring Five Points Prison with two mentors to show him the ropes. Someone, uh, a prisoner, threw some clear liquid out of his cell block, landed on these three men, uh, Turns out later that it was soapy water from his sink. He had been doing some laundry. And uh, a sergeant ordered them into the staff bathroom and said, take off your shirts and we'll preserve these shirts as evidence. 
And Cody Mackey walks into the staff bathroom and sees the two guards have taken off their shirts. They've laid them across a toilet. And one of the guards is urinating on the shirts. And the reason would be then to uh, to phony up charges against the inmate, get him with assault with the bodily fluid, and add a couple of years to his prison sentence. Cody Mackey uh, doesn't have any of that. He hands his shirt to the guy. He goes home, and eventually he decides to blow the whistle because it's just wrong what they were doing to that uh, prisoner. He told the superintendent of the prison who said, I can't keep you safe here. So uh, you're going to, I'm going to put you on leave for a while. Eventually, a couple months later, Cody Mackey goes back to prison at a different prison and he walks in that first day. The PA announcement says, uh, there's a snitch in the house. We can't, you know, things are going to be different than that other prison. Two guards come up to him to his face. You're a rat. Also, if a guard, if a, if a prisoner attacks you, the guard says, we're not going to be able to keep you safe. We're not going to come to your aid. So he handed in his resignation that day. There is, there is real strong cultural pressure on correctional officials not to blow the whistle, not to go against their colleagues. So this story is horrific, Cody Mackey's story, but it's also a story that we know because it was a prison guard who specifically wanted to kind of blow the whistle and and talk about what they saw inside. Talk for a minute about the barriers that we have to gathering information about what's really going on just in terms of receiving information from people who are locked up and and our uh, systems trusting the stories that they tell. Right. Uh, the That story about Cody Mackey would have been really hard to get, but for an action that the New York legislature took after the murder of George Floyd. We did not know that Derek Chauvin was such a lousy and, and bad police officer, that he had a long uh, disciplinary history of charges against him. After uh, George Floyd's murder, the New York Assembly changed the law. And so we can now, in New York at least, get access to law enforcement officer disciplinary records. We went after correctional officers because they are law enforcement, sworn law enforcement officers. So that was like the little crowbar that pried open these public records that made these records public and that we use them to tell and go into all these stories. The, the big problem with prisons is the lack of transparency. All this stuff that goes on behind walls and barbed wire, it's really hard for the public to get at what's going on. We, all, we had to threaten a lawsuit. It took us over a year just to get records that were now public by law. The, the records that you got access to are are internal records. I'm I'm I have to assume that there are many complaints filed by prisoners that don't end up in personal personnel records. Is that would that that's, be right? That's we tried to get those. We only were able to get the disciplinary records brought by the department. The complaints made by prisoners, there are tens of thousands of those. When we requested them, we got records, but they were just big black chunks of inked in redactions, like, you know, sheets after sheets of, mm. 
you know, black. Uh, so that okay. so it's it, mm -hmm. it's hard that that's hard there to get to get even deeper into it. You're listening to Lawn Disorder on KPFA Radio. The time is 8.44 in the morning, and I'm in conversation with Joe Neff, a staff writer for The Marshall Project, whose latest reporting uncovers the ability of New York prison guards to commit abuses, get fired, and then get their jobs back in a vast majority of cases. So let's go there. It, it takes a lot to get a prison guard fired for a variety of reasons that we've started to talk about. Describe the situation in which three quarters of New York prison guards who get fired actually get their jobs back through arbitration. Right. So this the system will file some uh, the prison system will file uh, charges against a guard. It will say you are a danger to the people in the prison or the clean running of the institution. So you're fired. Uh, the guard, as part of their union, uh, can challenge that. And in New York, the ultimate say over whether a guard is fired or not lies with a third-party arbitrator, a private contractor who's selected to hear these cases. And we looked at those, and in three out of four cases where the, the department really went to the mat, went all the way to arbitration to try to fire the guard, three out of four times, they got their job back. Either they were found, the arbitrator found them not guilty, or the arbitrator would say, well, yes, you did something wrong, but you've got a good personnel record, you've got a clean record, so we'll give you your job back. Uh, maybe you'll get a couple months of suspension without pay. But, but you're right, three out of four get their jobs back. And some of these cases are really, there's some strong evidence there, but... The arbitrator didn't uh, didn't agree or thought that the department did a crummy job of putting the case on and assembling the evidence. So prison guards unions are strong across the country in in just about any state. We're talking about New York right now, but I think it it'll illuminate us to try to understand the drama and and the extremity of what's happening in New York if you're able to help us compare the arbitration process in New York to here in California, um, where our radio station and our listeners are based. Arbitration, it's kind of like a courtroom, except that instead of having a judge, you have an arbitrator or, or a board of arbitrators. What's the difference in how that works in New York than how it works here in California? Well, what what's similar in New York and California is that the uh, Correctional Officers Union is very powerful uh, and is has a lot of political juice. What's different is that in New York, the arbitration uh, goes before a third party ar arbitrator, not a public official, not a public employee. And both sides in New York, both the union and the de that's defending the officer and the department that's trying to fire them, fire them have a say in who the arbitrator is. In California, it's different. Different. You have a, a personnel board uh, made of seven members. They're public servants and they're appointed by the governor. And that's all you, that's you. If you're going to challenge your firing in California, uh, you go before those same seven people. And so it's, 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 a, it's a bit different. In New York, for example, in these cases we looked at, where 
guards are accused of uh, beating up inmates or uh, covering up uh, the wrongdoing, there's about, uh, we, we found, I think, 21 different uh, arbitrators handled these cases, and two of them, just two of them handled over half of them. Uh, and that could be that, well, everyone trusts these two guys, but these two guys only, each of them only fired about 20% of the cases uh, that came before them. So it's, so it, it, is, it is different. Joe, we have just a minute left, but I want to. I'm hoping you can quickly, briefly talk us through some of the challenges that have gone through to try to change the arbitration clause in this New York prison guard contract. There was one in 2017, and then another challenge in 2018. Um, in order to change the arbitration con- con- clause in the contract, potentially making it at least a little bit more fair, right? Right. So the uh, the 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 state negotiated a new contract with the union leaders in 2017 and in there they would take um firing decisions out of the arbitrator's hands but only in the most severe cases sexual assault physical assault cover up bringing in contraband things like that uh, and all the regular workday tardiness you know absenteeism Goes still goes through arbitration. The union members voted that down uh, and rejected that contract. The following year, Governor Cuomo tried to do the same thing by putting it into law, reserving, uh, giving the Department of Corrections commissioner power over these really severe cases that I mentioned. And the legislature uh, killed that. The union's allies in the legislature just uh, ended it. Well, Joe, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Joe Neff is a staff writer for the Marshall Project who has investigated wrongful convictions, prosecutorial misconduct, probation, cash bail, and quote-unquote forensic science. His latest piece is called A Crazy System, How Arbitration Returns Abusive Guards to New York Prisons. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.